It's the Get Off My Lawn podcast for the week of August 13th, 2017. On tonight's program, you'll hear author, talk show host, and former NBC page Herbie J. Pilato say... And then I became like this writer guy, you know, and I'm like, how did this happen? Because I wanted to be an actor. Plus, you'll hear from the Straight Meets Gay Gang, the Philosodorks, and film critic Tim Brennan. I'm your announcer, Craig, and here's your genial host, Kevin. <laughs> Thank you, Craig. Thank you, listeners. Thank you... Thanks, Mom. I don't know why. Just hi, Mom. Thanks. Welcome to another edition of the Get Off My Lawn podcast. I am Kevin. I am, as as Craig indicated, your genial host. And we are here... Well, Backpack Studios is doing a little remote recording right now because I have no internet at the house. So I'm currently in a study room in my local library. You guys remember what libraries are like, right? They got, you know, these... these they're, they're like, you know, mobile devices, but they're made out of paper. And there's like pictures in them, and some of them have words. It's exciting being here in the library. But I'm not allowed to, you know, get emotional here in the room, or they, they knock on the door and say, hey, shh, quiet down, you're in a library. So I'm in a little study room here saying my hellos and waiting to get kicked out because apparently I, you know, I'm, I'm not welcome. But in the meantime, <laughs> welcome to the podcast. Uh, it's, it, it'll be a fun show today. We have uh, in, the illustrious author, background actor, writer, man about town, Herbie J. Pilato with us. Now, Herbie, I, I stumbled upon through a, a Facebook page dedicated to people who used to work at NBC, specifically the one in Burbank. And he sort of runs the page and contributes frequently to it. And he hosts a lot of uh, local things in the area that are sort of reunions for NBC, but also he'll host different uh, people at you know, Barnes & Noble. He'll, they'll have different book signings and things like that. He's an interesting cat, and, and it, it's a fun interview, I think, because, well, both he and I were talking a little industry talk and a little NBC talk, and, and there's something about having been an NBC page, uh, having worn the polyester, having lived through it, that it, it doesn't matter that our ages are apart. It doesn't matter that we have differing backgrounds or that we went different places. It's it's something that connects us. <laughs> so we bonded almost instantly and had a really fun talk. So if you like sort of the conversations that we've been having about some of the old school stuff, old school TV, old school music, old school radio, uh, old school movies, we, we talk a lot of that today. So I think you'll dig it. And also, as always, we've, we've got the, 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 the trio from the Straight Meets Gay podcast uh, talk, tackling the important issues of the day. And we also have Jesse and Rich from the Philosodorks podcast tackling important issues of the day. And uh, we will wrap things up again, as always, with, with our, our man about town, uh, that town being Boulder, Colorado. We have Tim, our film critic, who will be talking a little Stephen King, or in this case, a movie that seems to have been so detached from a Stephen King book that it doesn't seem to be a, a Stephen King movie anymore, but it still has Stephen King's name on it. Anyway, we'll, we'll talk about all of that at, at the tail end. So lots of stuff going on the podcast today. I'm not going to waste any more of your time, mainly because they're going to kick me out of this room any minute. So here is the interview with Herbie J. Pilato. And whatever you do, ladies and gentlemen, don't forget the J in Herbie J. Pilato. All right? This, this I command. <laughs> Cutting now to me. <laughs> Not tomato, pilato. Sorry, <laughs> it's my own mnemonic to try to get it right. And on that note, we are here at the beautiful Claim Jumper in beautiful downtown Burbank, California, with Herbie J. Pilato, 
Kirby, thanks for uh, joining us here on the podcast. I'm so excited to talk with you, Kevin. I can't tell you. We are former pages, and that's an exclusive club. There, Very much. There, there, there are not many of us. I, I, I even asked, like, I, I encountered Herbie on, 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 there's an NBC alumni Facebook page, which you're not allowed if you're not an NBC alumni, so I don't know why I'm spoiling it. which I established. Way. Which he established. <laughs> and I, I asked recently if the page program is still going on here on the West Coast, and apparently it is, but they don't obviously do studio tours no. up on the Universal lot. I guess right. they're doing more of the almost internship type of things. So I don't know if they get to uh, wear the polyester suits that we wore, or if I they think they a, a version of it. It's not the same, but yes, some kind of version. Of it. Yes. So Herbie was a page at NBC, and I guess we should probably explain what a page is. But for when when were you an NBC page? I was a page at NBC Burbank from May 1984 to December 1985. And what did what what are the job description? What's the job description of a page? Well, we really did everything, but essentially, we the main position was giving tours of the studio and serving as an usher at the shows that taped at the studio. And it was other networks who rented that space out. It's part of the tour. That wasn't just NBC shows. What shows were were cooking when you were there? When I was there, it was the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. I mean, that was number one, starring sure. Johnny Carson. Yes. Wheel of Fortune with Pat and Vanna. Um, oh, that's did, right. They were in Studio 3, weren't they? They were Studio 3, correct. Um, I did the new Let's Make a Deal when, with Monty Hall when he actually brought it back. Right. Um, but also some <laughs> off-lot shows I did for NBC was uh, The Golden Girls. Oh, was that was the first season of The Golden Girls, which I later appeared on as an extra. Oh. After I left the NBC. <laughs> um, Family Ties, great show. That's when I actually stopped... I went to see Family Ties, a taping of it, in the fall of 83, and I stopped a page. And I says, hey, I want to do what you're doing. You. <laughs> you, sir. Great guy. His name was Horace Smith. God bless you, Horace. He's no longer with us. I said, I really want to do this job. He goes, no, you don't. <laughs> I said, yeah, I do. It doesn't pay anything. I says, I don't care. I mean, I was obsessed. Right? Yeah. So I says, how do I do this? He goes, well, all right, if you really want to do it, it only pays five ten an hour. I oh, see, it was, I think, eight ten when I was there. So, oh, you know, hey. we moved up. Wow. <laughs> you were living high. I was. <laughs> if there were seven of us, we could afford a one-bedroom apartment here, you know, living locally. Oh, God. Um, that was, now, now we should also point out there have been a lot of famous people who were pages. Yep. You know, they, they, we've got like the former head of Disney, Michael Eisner, was a page. Regis Philbin was a page. Peter Marshall, Hollywood Square. Peter Marshall was a page. Kate Jackson. Kate Jack. Debbie Vickers, who produced oh, Leno's yes. version of the Tonight Show, was, was a page, though she doesn't admit to it and denies it. You know, and <laughs> shunned us pretty much at any opportunity. Not that we're bitter about that, but no. But it was kind of it was a similar backstory for me. For me, what what got me interested was any time Carson would be doing a bit from the audience, there would be someone in a little cheesy looking suit and tie standing behind him, you know, handing him cards or handing him whatever the prize was for right. the goofy questions. And I was like, that seems like a, a, a fun job. Actually, you know, I you're talking about Stump a Band. Yeah. Um, in December of '85, which was my last month, because you're contracted for 18 months, you either move up or you move out. Um, they, I was depressed because I'm like, okay, I'm in my last month. What do I do? Where do I go? You know, you get that feeling. And on the, the day that I was really depressed, they called me and said, you're going to do Stump the Band. So I do Stump the Band with Johnny. Nice. I'm like, you know, under six feet. That's all I'll say. I'm, under, I'm short. And um, because I am short, I was on the step 
just right next to Johnny, and apparently there was a big ruckus in the director's booth because I was in every frame, <laughs> and usually the pages ahead mm -hmm. are not seen. So the director, who I believe is, I can't think of his name right now, who directed this? Um, Kevin. See. Kevin. There were a couple of them in the last couple of years. Well, I, I, Ray Figelski was the TD, but I don't remember who the director his was. Name escapes, but he's the one that was yelling in the booth, "Who is this guy? He's in every frame. Get him out of there!" It was, it was the best. It was actually they. I was offered an uh, an extension. Remember, you're offered like mm -hmm. an extension, and I said no. And apparently, I was the first page to turn down an extension. Wow. And I did so because I felt well, I signed up for 18 months. That's I want to keep that. You know, this way I would feel. And they respected me for that tremendously. You know, I went on unemployment <laughs> for the next year. Welcome to the Hollywood story. <laughs> And I should also mention, you know, this being a podcast about writing, that Herbie has written a book about this called... NBC and Me, My Life as a Page in a Book. In a Book. And he's written a couple other books, which we'll talk about as well, that kind of chronicles some very famous and well-known shows in the past here. But I, I, I like talking talking Peacock with people. I like, you know, the, I, as we were saying before, the mics are rolling. You know, I worked on a lot of different studios, as I'm sure you did. There was something different about the NBC Burbank lot. There was there was a different character. Yeah, it, it, there, there were you know there were people that had been there 40, 50 years since they opened the place, and you know there I don't know if you've seen it on YouTube. There was a video just as they opened the studio. Steve Allen did a show for a week or something from well it would become the Carson Studio, but he did a, a song and dance bit where, where he they're danced going to around. the hall. Yeah, and the place hasn't changed. It looked, it looked exactly. You know, then as, as it still does today, although obviously the peacocks have been removed since it's no longer an NBC owned property. But it, it was a dream job. I mean, you're a native California, mm -hmm. correct? So I came little Rochester, New York. You know, I watched those shows like Laugh In, Sanford and Son, certainly Johnny Carson. So to actually be in those halls, even when some of those shows were gone, yeah, it was like, oh my God, that was Red Fox's uh, dressing room. There's the fickle finger of fate. Yep. You know. It was a dream job. No two ways about it. And it's and my first TV gig, if you will, was interning on CNBC, which was across the street in what was then known as the Catalina Building, which no longer exists. But I worked with, among other people, Tom Snyder, who was a big NBC guy. Sure. And he sort of instilled in me that sort of sense of NBC camaraderie, and you know that it was it was a, a, a different studio to, to be on. You know, I worked on CBS. I didn't feel that. You know, it wasn't that it was a bad place to work. There were good people there as well. But the names and the people that I'm still connected to almost 20 years later are all the NBC faces. I think it has something to do with the original studio. It was one of the original net, the original network. Yeah. That family thing was just embedded from day one. Yeah. You know, um, even, you know, we've had a lot of reunions over the years as pages that I've orchestrated. And then general NBC alumni and everybody feels the same. It's just, it's just not the same. And people were, you know, as a, you know, I, I, we'll get into sort of what the studio tour was like because it was its own animal, as it were. But uh, my tours, admittedly, were very different in that I rarely used the stuff that was in the tour manual or the tour training or anything else. And what the tours became for me was whoever was walking down the hall became a part of the tour. I didn't care if it was a soap opera actor or Jay Leno or the cleaning guy, you know, whoever it was. And so as a result, like, by the end of my run as a page, I knew everybody on the lot pretty much by name. And 
it wasn't like oh I looked up to this person because they were an actor or looked down on this person because they were they, we all worked together we all did a thing and that was sort of what it was like and, and if, you, if you recall the tourists themselves didn't care either they were happy to meet the guy that cleaned the bathrooms at NBC because it was a unique experience for them yes. you know all of that became became different but what were your tours like what were some of the memories you have of, of as we called it the brown door tour when uh, well I used, I used to love giving it to you know, I would end up, I would end every tour with saying, you're going to see me on TV before 1990, you know. <laughs> and in some capacity I was, I did like extra work on Golden Girls later in General Hospital. But um, the tour itself, I was like the sensitive page, so I would get um, the, the, the very unique groups. Um, I would get um, the, the visually impaired groups, mm. which were one of my favorite, actually, where I... Um, uh, brought them into the costume department. Remember, we just had the window. You right. weren't allowed to go beyond it. They allowed us in, and I'd hear, and instead of saying, look at this beautiful costume, I'd bring them up and say, feel this, the texture of this. So I enjoyed things like that. I, I enjoyed, um, there were the, the Make-A-Wish Foundation, yeah. you know, where there was this beautiful little girl who, it was her dream, one of her dreams, and she wanted to take the tour. So they picked me. And um, I and like a lot was just nobody was on the lot that day, and I started praying, Lord, please send somebody great. And sure enough, Joan Collins walks by, okay, and she was doing some TV movie at NBC at the time. Michael Gross then walks by from Family Ties. He wasn't even supposed to be there. They didn't even <laughs> tape Family Ties on the lot. And I just looked at them with my eyes, and I explained, you know. With my, tried to explain what the situation was. It was beautiful. It was just beautiful. So those, I like those unique moments, and I tried to make it a show. You know, yeah. I tried to make to make the tour a show because sometimes it wasn't anything tapey, right. and you had to be that show for and them. F for us, it was worse when everybody was taping because then all the studio doors were closed. Right. You know, and you, it was all you for the for the hour, right. hour and ten minutes that you're given a tour. That, you know, you were the only person that they could interact with and the only thing that they could see was a studio door. That's true. And you have to say, well, behind this is something that's really cool and I can't show it to you. That's right. You'd be standing in front of a door. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> those were some of those times. I believe I'm on record as giving the, uh, the, the shortest tour uh, which was a, a, a group, uh, the ethnicity doesn't matter, but the translator, it was all people who did not speak English, the translator refused to translate oh, unless he found the information interesting or entertaining. <laughs> and apparently I was neither. <laughs> and so, I mean, we, I just did, after a, like a couple minutes of dealing with this, I just didn't stop them. We just walked through the building and took them out, and that, and that was it. I'm like, I'm sorry. So I'm you not would gonna. talk, and then he'd look at you, and he'd go, no, yeah, He'd like, no, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> You know, I was the lucky one that would get those sorts of tours, which, you know, and just things like that. But I, I, I think my tours were also different because at the time I came from a very technical background. Like, I had a degree in broadcast communications and engineering type of thing. And so I would take them back to what was called SkyPath, which was where the, the all the network feeds were routed, which it, it looks like a really cool Star Trek yeah. set and everything yeah. else. Most of the pages, because they didn't have any technical knowledge, feared technical questions and didn't go there. Yeah. 
it was down a little side yeah, hallway. I was one of those. Yeah, it was down a little <laughs> side hall. But it was like I would be there, and, and engineers would be so excited that someone would take an interest that they'd come out and literally join the tour and want to talk to the tourists and whatever else. And so, you know, that was how I got to know a lot of the, the behind-the-scenes guys. Well, see, that's the great thing about that job was, I mean, I wanted to be an actor when I first came to Los Angeles. But because of NBC, the NBC page job, I became very interested in the behind-the-scenes stuff and somewhat literate in it, you know? So it was, I was fascinated. I was very scared, you know, because you got to take that test, right, in the beginning. I, I don't do well on tests in general. <laughs> so let alone something like, I'm like, cyclorama, oh my God. Yeah. But I, I conquered it, and uh, it, was, it was one of the best jobs I've ever had in my life. And I was, I was allowed, like, NBC was a union shop. So there were, you know, there was always a limit to what you could do as a non-union person working on the studio lot, and so there, I, there were moments of pride when, like, I would get permission from a stage manager to move a chair, or you know, you know, bring out a prop or something like that. Was always kind of a cool thing for me because you weren't supposed to do that. You know, those are always somebody's jobs, and you could be fined working on the lot for doing a, a union guy's job without a union card. And so, like, when they would be comfortable enough with me to say, "Hey, Kevin." you know, do this or bring me that or whatever. I do remember ticking off the Tonight Show audio guy once because I was down listening to a sound check of a performer that I liked and the speaker dead center in front of the front row was, was blown. And I came up to him in the booth and I'm like, hey, the, you know, the, the speaker's out. And he starts cussing me six ways till Sunday. You, you, know, you don't know anything. You're some little punk kid, whatever else. And so he walks down just to prove me wrong and he kind of puts his ear to it and yanks the speaker up out. He was so upset that I was right. We got along fine after that. Sure. <laughs> you know, I had a big, very similar moment. I mean, when I first got the job, my, a lot of my um, page peers, not a lot, it's a few, and some of my supervisors, they thought I was cocky. Go figure. Go right? figure. And too cocky. And so I, uh, the LA Times came to do a story on NBC Pages, and I used to sing to the audience as a semi-warm-up guy to the warm-up guy. And when the reporter saw that I was doing that, he had his angle for the story, and I ended up being like the, the, the focus of the story mm. and the only positive voice in the story. <laughs> so the next day, everybody who said I was too cocky was like, oh, Herbie, like, you're a god. So it was totally different. You've changed. I'm like, dude. Nope. I haven't changed your yep. perception of me. It's <laughs> changed. I've always been a nice guy. Fasten your seatbelts. It's time for a few minutes with the guys from the When Straight Meets Gay podcast. All right, we are back again with Richard, Michael, Trey. When Straight Meets yeah. Gay is the name of the podcast. Gentlemen, how we doing? All right, we are solving all the world's problems with this segment, as you know. We've already conquered how gay is Hollywood. We've already conquered whether or not hipsters are good or evil. Today's topic is morning person versus night owl. Who is better? Ooh, Ooh dude. Okay, why? Okay, go ahead. Michael. You, Michael. You, Michael. Go ahead and get all you have to say out, Michael. Well, you guys did to me last time, right? Last week. Now you don't want to talk. That's why, no, but that's why we're we're apologizing. We're giving you a cue. Like, we're giving you, like, we're, you know, you deserve it, man. And well, action, Michael. Know, like, what if you're a vampire? Because then you're only a nine person. Oh, okay. You're not thinking you're less of a person. I guess it does, because you're kind of undead, but. 
And that's the segment, ladies and gentlemen. There you go. Yeah. You know, if you're a vampire, but you're a morning person, wouldn't that totally suck for you? Oh, that would uh, be terrible. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, dude. Like, I definitely think if you're like in the middle of creating something, nights are it. Because yeah. like everybody, the majority of the people are asleep, so that's like the time to kind of be... Yeah, go ahead, Michael. Come, go ahead. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry, dude. I love you, man. You, you go ahead, dude. No, you can talk. It's fine. No, I'm done. I'm like a midnight. Personally, are we saying which is better? Yeah, which, what's, sure. the, what's the preference? Did you not hear the question for me? No, I oh, heard it, man. but I heard it, but so much went on after that that I didn't even know what was going on. <laughs> yeah, we were all trying to talk because that's what we do. We fight for each other. Um, honestly, oh, you fuck. Being a morning person is better, I think. That's what I would go with. If I if I could choose one, I would want to be a morning person for sure. But you have to ask why? Why would you be a morning person, Trey? Because I don't know. I feel like they're more motivated. They get their day started quicker, and they're on with it. Okay, well, that's that very smart, Trey. I, I guess it's that. in the eye of the beholder. Did you Google the answer? I think you Google the answer. I yeah. did. All right. Issue resolved, then. <laughs> Urban Dictionary is really resourceful. It's <laughs> true, dude. It's good to know. And that's one to grow on. Yeah, dude. I mean, Urban... There you go. Motorcycle futon. Look it up. Oh, please don't. <laughs> look it up on, on Urban Dictionary. You'll really enjoy it. It's actually very interesting. Just look it up. <laughs> no, no, I swear. It's, on, it's online. Just look at yeah, just for all the list out there. Just, just look that up. And it's a little treat for you. It's a little side treat. We got so off topic. This is why we can't play together. Oh, okay. And this has been our segment with the When Straight Meets K podcast. (laughs) Michael, Trey, Richard, where can they find you? At the WSMGpodcast.com. That's right. (laughs) And our Twitter and Instagram is at WSMGpodcast. All right. We'll see you guys next week. Thanks for playing. Bye. Bye. Peace. You're still working in the industry in a lot of different ways, doing a lot of creative things. You're still writing about the industry in a lot of different ways. Tell me some of the other stuff that you've written about beyond your page, your pagedom. Well, the first book was the Bewitched book, and that happened actually because of NBC. I was working at NBC, um, or just shortly after I left NBC, there was a movie called I Dream of Jeannie 15 Years Later which was a reunion of that series. Everybody but Larry Hagman. Everybody but Larry Hagman. We were all like, what? Yeah. So I was upset because William Asher, who directed Bewitched and was married to Elizabeth Montgomery, had directed that. And I, I thought, that's not right. There's got to be a reunion for Bewitched. So I wrote a reunion for Bewitched. Elizabeth didn't want to do it. And then I said, how about we do a book? So um, I had actually broken my toe after I left NBC, so I started watching Bewitched again. Because that's all I could do. I had this little toe broke. <laughs> You really need that level toe. <laughs> and that's when I wrote the reunion. And she didn't want to do the reunion and said, how about we do the book? And that's how that happened. And then I did the Kung Fu Book of Cain. Then I did the Kung Fu Book of Wisdom about that series starring David Carradine. Snatch the Pebble from my Snatched hand. Snatch the Pebble. <laughs> uh, David wrote the foreword to that book. And then Elizabeth died in 95 and I rewrote Bewitched, the Bewitched book as Bewitched Forever. Then I did Life Goes On. Then I did the Bionic book. And then I did Twitch Upon a Star, which is a biography of Elizabeth. 
To name a few. To name a few. <laughs> and, then it be, yeah, and then it became like this writer guy, you know? And I'm like, how did this happen? Because I wanted to be an actress. And it was because of the books that I went on to do documentaries on Bewitched and Elizabeth. And then we did one on uh, uh, Dark Shadows for the Sci-Fi Channel. There was a show called Sciography that I started working on. It was like a, a sci-fi version of Biography. And we did, the, and I did a lot of those from my home back in Rochester, because by this time I had moved back to Rochester to care for my parents. So I became a documentarian, from author to documentarian, and really all because of, of NBC and Elizabeth, so Montgomery. What was she like? Give us a little insight. Oh, she was, she was just like Samantha. I mean, you watch, you watch Bewitch, that is Elizabeth. I mean, her, her, uh, her vocal mannerisms and everything. She was a doll. She, she, her, her mother and father were very well-to-do. Robert Montgomery was a movie star. Elizabeth Allen was a Broadway actress. I, I never connected that, because yeah. I know Robert Montgomery from a couple of early movies. Oh, absolutely. And uh, never had any airs about her. She was very down-to-earth, and she brought that down-to-earth sensibility to Samantha. And that's why she made that character so believable, because she was so believable. Uh, she was a sweetheart and died much too young. Much too young. She died sh shortly after my father in '95, so that was kind of a difficult year. Uh, but I owe her my career. And what are you working on now that you're allowed to talk about? I'm not saying that he told me things Nothing. he's not allowed to talk about, but I um, think there's some things he's allowed to talk about. <laughs> Who is doing this allowing, by the way, and not allowing? <laughs> he's got weapons pointed at me right now. That's what's going on. I'm very excited about my new classic TV talk show which is uh, soon to be on the Decades TV Network. It is called Then Again with Herbie J. Pilato. We've done six episodes the first season, and we focus on classic TV actors. We've done episodes on with Ed Asner as a tribute to Mary Tyler Moore. We did one on Burt Ward for Batman. We've done a tribute to Gary Marshall with Mary Marion Ross from Happy Days and Cindy Williams from Laverne Shirley, Eddie Mecca from Laverne Shirley. We did another episode on the Wild Wild West with Robert Conrad. He's still kicking. Oh he's, my gosh. He's got a radio show that he does that he's is just hysterical else. to listen to if he you haven't. He's really something People, it, it's, And he's not going to change. You know, it's what it, yeah. when, when a woman calls on the radio show, he goes, hey, baby doll. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's a trip. He's a trip. And then we did an episode on Dark Shadows, which is like one of my favorites. We had, that was I a was cult classic, to be sitting sure. sitting in the same room with Angelique Lara Parker. Catherine Lee Scott Jones, that David Selby, Quentin, I couldn't believe it. So we're excited about it. It's going to be on. The, we're, we're waiting for an air date, but it's everything that I've done regarding. I mean, even back to NBC, but certainly the books on classic TV shows. And I was writing for TVWriter.com, which I still am, is a classic TV focus. It's led me to this, you know. And when I was a kid, you know, like a, a lot of people in the industry, we all want to be stars. But I do remember praying to God. Uh, that please make me successful later so I can handle it, you know, instead of just being yep. thrust into the limelight. Yep. Not that I'm some superstar or whatever be, but so it's, it is, it, it did happen later. The food is being delivered yes, now, ladies food. and gentlemen. By a very lovely, Life. thank you so much, human being. <laughs> but we scared her off. She has run gone. screaming. <laughs> it's nice that we can put waitresses in therapy. <laughs> on our shows here. Brace yourselves for some deep thoughts with the help of the Philosodorks. We are a podcasting machine. I know. Us. 
And the reason I'm motivated to do this fast is I have to turn off the air conditioner when I'm recording, so... <laughs> That's highly motivational. The sooner yeah. I get this done, the sooner I can stop flop sweating. That's uh... And I have to stop drinking whiskey long enough to talk, so it's a good motivation for me. To... <laughs> <laughs> All right, ladies. All right, gentlemen. We are joined again by Jesse. We are joined again by Rich <laughs> and Rich Coughing. Rich coughing is sort of the way Rich greets people. If if Rich was his own species, that would be his way of saying hello. It's just by hacking up, you know, a bit of his lung and giving it to you, because that's that's I just who he is. Coughs as, as as the Eskimos have words for snow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. After you've lived with them for a while, you start to sort of understand what each of them is, and it's like there are certain ones where it's like whatever, I don't pay attention, and then there are other ones where I'm like. Whoa! Are you okay? Yeah. You should talk to when when, even, when even your dogs take notice, those are the ones you want to you want to watch out for. There. How, how are the dogs doing? I haven't asked about the dogs yet. Oh, they're doing fine. They're chilling out. Simon is currently curled up underneath the, the very table at which we are sitting. Zoe's curled up, uh, kind of over in the, over to the side. They're being very well behaved. Uh, they're not as well behaved when we record. God, when we record, there's always like barking <laughs> and you know wanting to get out of the room, and it's terrible. Well, I am known for being a calm, soothing influence. Maybe not. Well, Zoe does love you, so... <laughs> <laughs> All right, we've talked about this a little bit in previous segments. We've touched upon it. So this time we're, we're going to bring up the big topic, the one that Rich and I always butt heads on when we are in the middle of a massive episode of drinking. Rich, can faith and philosophy be reconciled? I think probably. Now, obviously, you know where my commitments are in this regard. I am an atheist. I am not what would be classified these days as a so-called new atheist. No, because you you don't hate people of faith. You're not you're not like you well, know Ricky Gervais or some of the others that are out there. Bill Maher being a, a key. Bill, Bill Maher, yeah. Man, fuck Bill Maher. That guy's a dick. Just, That's pretty much it. There's a way to be an atheist without being an ass. Yeah, and uh, there, there, there's there's a way to be a comedian and still be funny, which apparently also, yeah. they've forgotten yeah. how to do. I used to really like both of those people, by the way. So, so yes, talk to me about faith and philosophy. What, you know, I, we mentioned in, in, in the first little installment that you know philosophy was really changed in medieval times as it became a basis and a use. You know, so you were trying to connect religion to it at the time and connect what you read in the Bible with what was going on in day-to-day life. There's still people doing that to a certain extent today, for better or for worse, aren't they? Uh, absolutely. There are philosophers of religion. The University of Notre Dame, in fact, is this sort of global center for, for that kind of work in, in, in the Western world. And uh, there's a, a gentleman uh, who I think is finally retired by the name of Alvin, Alvin Kleininger, who more or less single-handedly turned philosophy of religion into a sort of an academically respectable subject again by being just crazy good at logic, and uh, especially a particular obscure area of logic called modal logic, and, and applying that to problems related to how could we know that there's a God? He thought he had proved there's a God, uh, which that in itself was kind of an act of bravery. Neat. Help. Yeah, that's... Right, right. So so that that is definitely a very fertile area of thought even today. And, and, and I think that what's important is to practice a little bit of humility in terms of... It is this, you know, this goes all the way back to Socrates. Know what you know, know what you don't know. Confucius said a similar thing, that, that knowledge uh, consists in knowing what you know and knowing what you don't know. I think my problem with the new atheist types, like a Dawkins, like a Bill Moore, is that they're just so absolutely <laughs> fucking certain about what they think. Sure. About what are what are fundamentally unknowable propositions. It's impossible to know whether there's a God. Now, there might be specific things that appear in various religious scriptures where we say, okay, well, obviously that's bullshit. All right. 
<laughs> I mean, come on. That, that's that's or you know, in, in the, to, to put it in sort of the ethical sphere. Okay, obviously that's terrible and evil, and don't do that, even if it says so in whatever happens to be your uh, uh, religious scripture of, of preference. But well, if I may interject, yes, you may. I think the problem that you start to run into when you are sort of looking at where faith and philosophy intersect is that there is a segment of religious folks who think that faith and critical thinking cannot exist at the same time. Just because you're a person of faith doesn't mean that you can't or shouldn't think critically or try to understand the world around you. But there is a segment of people who think that, okay, it's in this old ass book that really it's metaphor, it's parable, it might be a little bit historical, but it's just mostly stories that are kind of trying to make a point. Well, it's not a, it's not a textbook. That's the that's one of my exactly, first arguments against my fellow there. people of faith is when they start looking at it as a textbook and stating, "Oh, we we should teach creationism in science class." That's BS. Even if you believe in creationism, there's nothing about creationism or quote unquote intelligent design that is scientifically founded. It doesn't well, belong in that sort of class. You know, you can say that you don't believe in evolution, but right. it's not a question of belief. Evolution is a fact. It happens whether you don't whether you want it to or not. It it's a thing. Ask any so, pathologist who's who's tried to treat somebody with an infection that no longer responds to antibiotics. Yeah. Like, you know, just because you don't want to think critically doesn't mean that you don't need to. So I think that that's really kind of the fundamental problem when you start trying to reconcile these things is there are people who are, and I don't know if it's because they are insecure in their faith or if they are insecure in their intelligence or if it's a combination of factors, but there are people who take someone trying to be logical about some matter of faith and they get really, really upset about it because they feel like the fact that evolution is real somehow damages their faith. It somehow makes their faith less real or true or whatever, and it it fucking doesn't. Like Charles Darwin himself was a seminary student before he went into biology. You want to know what? I actually have somewhere in my possession this book called Finding Darwin's God that I started reading, and I... Never finished it because it was like it was a lot. It's a sure, really, sure. really. It was. Ba- it was basically rich in book form, wasn't it? A little bit, yeah. I mean, yeah. I hadn't met him at that point. Really, but... would take it in small doses. Yeah, but you know, it that's it. I, it was really kind of just working on sort of reconciling the idea that you know faith and logic can exist at the same time in the same place. And I think to just kind of put a bow on it, my response to people who, who refer to uh, religiosity as stupid, primitive, naive, some of the greatest minds in history, philosophers and scientists, have been people of faith. Well, sure. Isaac Newton, for Christ's sake, pardon the pun. Manuel uh, <laughs> Kant. John More like Emmanuel Kant, am I right? <laughs> ah, there's, there's no puns allowed here. There's no I don't like him either. <laughs> Well, I forgot there's no puns allowed on Kevin's show. So. Yeah. Suck it. So we're going to violate you, that rule. You can go, go, back to your, go back to your own podcast for your puns. And... <laughs> but I will say, this this segment here, Rich, you really didn't contribute shit. Jesse carried the torch on this one. Carried yeah, I've I, I, I got to say, I, I, I know when I've been bested. Yeah, you, been... you could have been drinking whiskey this whole time, and it would have been no different on this segment. So, Jesse, thank no, you. Yeah, Rich, what yeah, the fuck? Just... Just nothing. All right, all right, Jesse. Since you're you 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 you're carrying the ball here, tell us where we can find your show. Right, 
You can find us at philosodorks.com. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at dorkscast. You can find us on Facebook. We are philosodorks there. Um, let's see. You can find us on iTunes and uh, Google Play and podcasts. No, po- Pocket Cast. Pocket Cast. Edit that out. What, what, you can fix this in Pocket Whatever the hell that thing is. I ain't fixing shit. Uh, Gosh, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know where podcasts are going natural. <laughs> um, anywhere that fine podcasts are found, if you listen to us and like us, if you wanted to rate and review us, that would be freaking awesome. Um, we are giving shout outs on the show for people who pimp us, so make sure you share us with your friends and family. And finally, if you have questions that you would like us to talk about on the show, if you have feedback, anything like that, you can hit us up on our email, which is dorkscast at gmail.com. All right, we will do this again next week. Whether people like it or not. <laughs> Suck it. Same bat time, same bat channel. That's my that's my little Adam West homage. Way to go. Suck it. Suck it. That's, that's her. I don't know. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> Rich Jesse, see you next time. <laughs> so now do we we can chew? Or if if you care to chew, you can chew. I mean it's you know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna it's too good not to chew. There's, you know, he, he, he is eating much healthier than mm. me. Though I'm, I'm eating seafood, so it's still semi-healthy. But he has an all-vegetarian entree that he is enjoying. The reason we kind of, we both talked about this just before we started recording, neither of us lives in beautiful downtown Burbank. Neither of us lives near beautiful downtown Burbank. But it seemed natural to do a show featuring two NBC pages that are a block away from what used to be the NBC Burbank studio. I it just love, seems... Listen, I live 40 miles away. I loved coming here to, to meet with you here because I'm always going to love NBC. Oh, yeah. Always going to love this area. So, you know, 23, we're t- how old are you when you were, Paige? Uh, yeah, 21, 22. Yeah, okay, so th- those are cool years yeah. and embedded forever in our minds. Um, so I love being here. You know what? Downtown Burbank is gorgeous. Today. It really is. Okay, it's n- it's not what it used to be, and I really regret not getting a house then in Burbank because I was so shied away from it. Because Johnny would say, "You know, downtown sure. Burbank, whatever." So I was like, "Oh, there's something wrong with it." But it's Bingberry meets Hollywood. Yeah, they have. Uh, we are again about two blocks from it an equestrian neighborhood where they don't have garages; they have stables. There are, you know, horses still allowed to, you know, clop, could clop down the streets here in, in Burbank, which is, you know, you don't see that much anywhere anymore. But it's, it's yeah, it, it has its own character for what is essentially a suburb of Los Angeles. And the, the studio itself was never anything special to look at. You know, I said, to me, what always made the studio special and different from the other studios and sound stages were the people that were there. You know, now that those people are no longer there, I don't know that I would feel the same sort of... And, and again, I told uh, Herbie here, I tried like crazy to get us on the lot today to do kind of a walk and talk through the sound stages and everything, but it just I, I don't have well, any connections now that by, it's not no, NBC. Well, it's owned anymore. by a different entity, yes. Yeah, but even, even walking through, I went there... I did not go to the last Jay Leno Tonight Show, but I went to the day before the last Jay Leno Tonight Show, and I got permission at the time from a guy to uh, who I knew very well uh, to go backstage and take some pictures and things of some of the places and some of the things. Yeah, I tried to do things like that, but I said, hey, I was a page from 1984 to 1985. He didn't care. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's because nobody liked you. See, that you said you got sure. cocky. I did. Real <laughs> cocky. Did I tell that story in the air? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> 
Absolutely. But you know, and, and it's you know, and certainly I had my own ego at the time as well. But that's you know, I I, I was one of those. I, I told Herbie I worked for uh, Dick Clark Productions shortly after uh, my my tenure as a page was up, and one of the first shows we did was back on the NBC lot in what was the old Johnny Carson Studio, Studio One, which is now the home of the iHeart Radio Theater. For those of you that want to stay mainstream and contemporary. But uh, they needed, they wanted to walk around and scout out uh, office space and things like that. And they were having trouble connecting with the NBC people to make it happen. And I'm like, oh, let me make a call. And they're like, this young kid we just hired is going to get us onto a studio. It took like two minutes. <laughs> they're like, there's something going on with this Kevin guy we don't know. <laughs> he should not have that sort of, you know, easy access to places. But, you know, like, as a page... You did have easy access to places. You know, when, when you start giving the tours, you open up different doors, they give you, they issue you a key. NBC's locksmith was the laziest locksmith in the <laughs> country because that key opened 99% of the doors in the building. You know, I did not know that. You know, I did not know that. I wish I would have known that. Yeah. It, it opened every dressing room. It opened most of the, the broadcast booths. It opened most of the engineering areas. It opened everything downstairs in the, the sub-sub-basements. But yeah, not that you know I ever took advantage of that. No, no, certainly not. But uh, in, in, in later years when I would work on shows, like The Tonight Show had a lot of dressing rooms in between stages one and three. There was one dressing room downstairs. I don't know if you ever saw that or how much time you ever spent in the in the underbelly of the studio but they didn't use it often it was only for sort of the really shy standoffish I think people. I did see it once it was yeah. a great place to just get away from people and relax I used mm. to love they had a nice comfy couch <laughs> you know that most of the time whether you're a page whether you're working on a show there's no real break room you know, you can go sit in the commissary, but that's really not a relaxing environment. So I would find that little dressing room. They rarely used it, and you could just sit and chill and, and relax. I used to go, uh, during my breaks, I'd go on the star on the set of the Johnny Carson show. On the stage, you had the mm -hmm. star where you would stand. Mm -hmm. And I would just dance there myself, saying that I was, you know, on the, sh on the show. Because I thought, well, I used to take the tour, and I remember thinking, gee, it would really, really be cool to be that page. So now it was a page. And then I used to go on the Johnny Carson show, so I go, it would be really good if I could creative, use creative oh, visualization. Yeah. And I, to this day, I had a dream that was so real that I was on the Johnny Carson show that I, I think I might have been. <laughs> <laughs> I still think I might Well, they're, they're rerunning them on Antenna TV, yes, so you are. might see yourself one day. Actually, I wrote a, I wrote a tribute to that for uh, Emmys.org. There is a profile that I wrote about Johnny and his return to that network. Uh, if you look, if you go to, to a search on Emmys.org for Johnny Carson, you can see that article. That's cool. I uh, my my similar thing with with the Carson Studio is if I wanted to, my sort of get away from it all place was and for those that have never seen the studio, it's it's the one thing that separates it from most of the other studios on in Hollywood is that it has a fixed audience section. They built it into the to, to the stage. Uh, yes. and, and so, I mean, it, it, you can't move them. Pretty much any other studio is just a big box. You can bring in bleachers for the audience, you can bring in chairs, whatever right. else, but this one has fixed seating. And they go literally all the way up so that, you know, even Herbie, who said he's not a tall man, would hit his head if he were to stand upright from that top row. And I used to walk all the way up to that top row and just sit there and sort of 
not meditate, but contemplate, you know, all the people that came into that building, all the people that worked on that show, all the creativity that flowed through that place, and that was sort of my, my happy place, if you will, my sort yeah, of spiritual absolutely. center, was being up there realizing that on any given day, 500 people from all over the country would travel and stand out in the hot Burbank sun waiting to be let in to just laugh and be entertained. Yep. And that, to me, was, was sort of that cool. Absolutely. And, you know, getting back to Johnny specifically, what a class act. Oh, yeah. Um, really, I mean, he was, and, I, and I'm trying to do with my show what he did, to let the, the guests talk, like you're letting me now. You know, whereas there's so much quippiness going on mm -hmm. in today's world, and some of the other hosts are okay, but Johnny really respected each guest and that show the way it was set up the audience was in the dark right okay there they were over there the stage was over here there were the stars you know if you I don't know what it was like in your day but if any of the audience members said a word out there <laughs> gone today they're like whoop, 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 yeah. right well everybody had to be quiet nobody could take any pictures which I think still holds true yeah but it was just so different stars were stars Audiences were the audience, and everything, and everybody was okay with that. Now, in your day, were people still dressing up to attend the tapings of the shows, or it just sort of laxed a little? Because some well, of my favorite pictures from sort of not the black and white years, but sort of the '70s years and maybe early '80s, whenever you would see some of the people, is the women were dressed up in you know very floral lace dresses. The guys always had coats and ties. That to me was always sort of a slick thing. Like, were I to ever become famous enough to appear as even a guest on a show? I would not show up in jeans and a t-shirt, you know, that's just not something I don't think I could do. Yeah, I mean, well, Johnny, he was a, was the word clothier? He had his own line of clothes. Right. You know, and he was always so meticulous, you know, the way he dressed. There was an elegance about that show, so I think, you know, it was a big deal. I know it was a big deal for guests to come on. Everybody, everybody did it. He was the go-to guy at night. There were a lot of people who tried. Joey Bishop tried to dethrone him. Even remember Griffin tragedy thrown him. Alan Thick had a show for Alan a while. Thick. A couple of others. Of course, the whole Joan Rivers thing. Joan Rivers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, he's got a longevity to it. Again, in, in my previous life, one of the jobs that I held was a, a school teacher. And there'd be days, you know, snow days, whatever it was, you know, we're, we're stuck in, in the classroom for whatever reason, or we've got some free time. I would put on some old Carson bits. Mm. And I gotta tell you, they're ageless. Mm -hmm. You know, they work just as well now with any random audience of people as, as they did back then. And it's, right. you know, and, and we don't have that sort of national focus anymore that, you know, you could always the next day after a Carson show talk to pretty much anybody about who was on Johnny Carson. At the water cooler. At the water cooler, at, you know, on the playground, in college dorms, whatever it would be, everybody knew what was going on with Johnny and whoever was on the show and whatever was happening on the show. In those days, there, you know, there really isn't a show that does that anymore. There really isn't. And like you said, there's a different tone to talk shows now. That it's mean. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, Johnny was funny mm -hmm. and he was sarcastic at times, but not every two seconds. Mm -hmm. um, and people just didn't come on to promote stuff. They would actually. He would want to know about their lives, and then all of the guests would stay on, you stay know, on for the, the entirety yeah, move down on the, the sofa, just move on down. Now everybody leaves, except them that one time when Steve Martin did Johnny Carson show, and he comes on, and he goes, okay, well, I have to go, 
and I have to catch, oh. catch a plane. And he gets off, and he leaves, and then he comes back behind the curtain crying. Goes, I really don't have to go. I just wanted to sound important. It sounded so cool. Yes, and you know, there, there were certain guests that would come on. Like even now, like I knew a couple of people that uh, were segment producers on his show, and were segment producers on on Leno's version of the show, and there are certain people that you wouldn't have to do a pre-interview with. You could just say, like, to Steve Martin, all any of them ever had to say was, we got seven minutes. And you go, okay. That's right. <laughs> and he would give you seven minutes of Steve, you know, and things like that. And it's, there, there was a regular cadre of guests that they could bring on that would just do that. Like you said, not necessarily to promote anything, just because Johnny liked them. They liked Johnny, and they would they would come on and do that. And why I do this podcast is, is not to make money, though it would be nice if you'd care to donate. But uh, it, it is to sort of showcase some of that creativity, and you know, not to be mean-spirited. I'm not here yelling at Herbie about his politics. Yeah, that's what say now. Yeah, well, you know, we'll edit it out. <laughs> but it, it, it's just to give people a, a, a different, I guess, exposure to a different type of show. That I don't think exists. Maybe your talk show is. I look no, forward that, to it. No, my talk show. Yeah. Is but uh, it's, going it's to be hard there. to find those, those those sorts of just sort of positive, you know, things of just people allowed to talk about their passions, or allowed to talk about what interests them. You know, writing obviously interests you. That your days yeah, at NBC. For some reason, you. there are many people who have the power makers or the decision makers who feel that that kind of thing isn't going to be popular. That's just not true. Good is good, and a good story is a good story, and a good conversation is a good conversation. And if people, like I said, are passionate about something, a couple of years back I went to, to Comic-Con down in San Diego mm. for the first time, just to see a couple of, there were specific people that I wanted to, to cast their you know their bits and whatever. I learned a trick to getting the good seat for somebody that I wanted to listen to, or a Q&A session I wanted to go, was to go to the session before and kind of sit through it. And there, you know, I'm not a big comic book guy. I was there more for the TV shows. You know, I saw The Greatest American Hero did a reunion of everybody and, and a couple things like that. But to see people so passionate about what they like, whether it's comic books, whether it's writing, whether it's, you know, TV, whatever it is, that, that to me is kind of, it, it's a cool thing to experience and cool thing, you know, to witness. Like, back on The Daily Show when Jon Stewart was the host, he had on a guest who was a uh, maker of crossword puzzles. They spent like 15 minutes talking about crossword puzzles. Yeah. Now, my mom likes crossword puzzles. I find them to be not exciting in any way, shape, or form, <laughs> but Stewart totally digs crossword puzzles and they had that moment of just bonding over this thing that they both enjoyed that was fun television right. it was fun to watch right you know, because Jay, they made it fun right you know Jay Leno love him or, or hate him he loves cars he's passionate about cars right I love his YouTube channel where he talks about cars right you know and shares his experiences with cars that to me is just it's it's an interesting thing that we it, don't get to do anymore exactly. it's just to be able to spotlight our passions our interests and things like that which you know not to bring this back to me but <laughs> I gave you time to chew he's done chewing he's ready to talk again <clears throat> see that's what we're trying to do is now he can talk and I can chew that's how it's gonna work <laughs> oh, okay now I forgot what I was gonna say we're bringing it back to you oh bring it back to me with the classic TV show or the classic TV talk show I'm very passionate about classic TV I mean that's why my producer God bless him Joel Eisenberg and Lori Gersh Eisenberg love them both uh, they saw that in me. They would attend my live events that I would hold at the Burbank Barnes & Noble where I would have classic TV authors or actresses talk about their book. So I was passionate. No one was paying me for that. I traveled 40 miles every Thursday on Throwback Thursday to, to interview these stars, and I was having fun. Yeah. It was costing me money, but I followed my passion, and at, uh, Joel and, and Lori saw that, and they said, hey, we want to turn this into a show. 
So, you know, now I have my own TV show. You know, whether it lasts two years, one year, five years, whatever, yeah. I've done it. You've and done I, it. You've I'm done just, it on your terms. You've done it the exactly, way you want. Exactly. Exactly. You know, getting back to some of the really wonderful classic TV stars that I met, I mean, nobody was a bigger fan of Farrah Fawcett or John Travolta or Paul McCartney. Met them there because of the job at NBC, you know? I actually had to go tell John Travolta that he couldn't go on. I think it was Joan Rivers. <laughs> they bumped Travolta. Ooh. At, at a certain time. So he, they were some, having some kind of birthday cake for Joan or something. Joe was hosting that night. And they said, Herbie, you have to go tell John he can't go on yet. I said, what? <laughs> you have to go tell John. I gotta go tell John Travolta. So I said, I knocked on his door. Mr. Travolta? And I even thought about that for a moment. Mr. Travolta? He says, yeah. He says, yeah. I says, they, uh, they, they, they don't want you on yet. He goes, huh? Not yet. Oh, all right. And it was that. Okay. So, but I mean, I'm five foot looking up at John Travolta. You know, who was my idol? I mean, if you were Italian in New York, (laughs) you wanted to be John Travolta. And I was both those things in the 70s. I'm still Italian. (laughs) He is. (laughs) He showed me his Italian ID card. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. I don't know know exactly what that means. It's not innuendo. Now we've crossed into an odd zone of the talk show. It always happens. I don't know why, you know. I was telling you again before we started taping that rarely do I just sit down with a writer and talk about writing. It just doesn't happen. I'm like, here's a guy. We both share the same interests. We both like writing. We both do this. Let's talk about... Okay. So we're on Travolta. <laughs> again, that's not innuendo. We're not... Yeah. But... Um, so yeah, Farrah was on and, and then... But I, Paul McCartney stands up at the most because he would... Everybody was working at NBC at the time. They came to see him. They wanted to stand in that hallway oh, yeah. to see you know, um, Paul McCartney. So he walks by before taking, or after, one or the other. There's like a million people in the hallway. He breathes, he goes, hi. We all went, <laughs> all at the same time. <laughs> we turned our head, I was trying to turn my head. <laughs> and then, <laughs> bam. He, that's the charisma, charismatic mm-hmm. power of that guy. So that was, that, those are my, my three favorites. I, uh, favorite I, I did not get in trouble for this, but I did break a rule at NBC, which was, uh, and he passed away last year, Prince was on The Tonight Show. Mm. And before he came, through his management, through The Tonight Show, a memo was passed out to everybody on the studio lot. Mm. And the memo contained the list of things we were not allowed to say or do in Prince's presence. We weren't allowed to make eye contact, certainly no physical contact. You were not allowed to call him by name. Uh, You were not allowed to do X, Y, and Z. So I'm leading a studio tour. I read the memo to the tourists, omitting the word not from all of the instructions. (laughs) Thinking, this will be a funny thing, but we're never going to see him. You know, the the odds of him arriving at the same time as I'm walking through the midway are slim to none. It's never going to happen. Guess whose limo pulls up just as my tourists are walking out into the midway, and 20 strangers start bear-hugging him, calling him Prince Rogers Nelson, any number of other things. 
he, he, he again, not a tall man, very small in stature, big personality, but he was uh, not not happy with that. Oh my god! <laughs> and what year is this? That would have been again probably ninety eight. It was it was the the I mean he was a well known very very famous guy. But most of the ones, like, who were you starstruck by? You said Travolta, and you said Farrah Fawcett were two that you idolized. Was there anybody that left you sort of speechless? Like now? Yeah. Um, <laughs> like I'm speechless Like now. now. <laughs> you know, I can't think because, well, I got, I mean, I got in the, uh, I used to do, did you ever do a limo run? Mm-hmm. Okay. The so limo run is where the page goes with the limousine driver, with the star, to the airport to make sure they get there. So I did my, my first limo run was with James B. Sickey. I mean, he was just, you know, a supporting actor on Hill Street Blues. Blues. And he was also in, he had a very small part in uh, Star Trek, one of the Star Trek movies. Yeah. I think it was Star Trek Three. Played like a captain for five minutes. I was in awe of that, that I was in the backseat, you know, the limo with the Star Trek captain. Um, um, Jeez, I'd have to say, I, I lost the Starstruck thing. Which I guess was good yeah. for our job because you have to treat them as like equals, or, or you're gonna right. And I think and it contributed again to uh, my meeting with Elizabeth Montgomery years later. You know, one of the reasons why she opened up to me is because I never asked her to twitch her nose, right. never asked for a picture, never asked for an autograph. And I didn't do those things. And it's always somebody like James B. Sicking who would think to you know of all the people that you're gonna meet that that's the one you're gonna be. That was by. more important to me than Paul McCartney. Yeah. And it's I, when I was an intern at CNBC, one of the guests I was escorting uh, from the from the lobby back up to the, the green room was Florence Henderson, was Mrs. Brady. Oh, loved her. And because I guess just because she was so iconic and always on the TV screen when I was a kid and always just, you know, the mom, the consummate mom, I was a little tongue-tied in her presence. And she was there with one of her sons. I think she had a couple of kids. And you know, when she went on, on to the show... I was talking with her son, and I was like, so you grew up with you know, Mrs. Brady as a mom. What was that like? And he had the best line to me that put me really at ease with her is he said, no, I grew up with Mrs. Henderson, and she was better. Oh, there you Which go. I thought was just this great line. Okay. I'm sure he'd been asked the question Let before, but it was something. just it was I, a great I, have, line. I had the privilege, again, of writing for Emmys.org. I did a profile on Florence when she passed, and I interviewed all of her children, and they are the sweetest, kindest people. Florence, like Elizabeth, brought up her children to be down to earth, mm-hmm. unaffected by the whole thing, so she was an amazing parent. And what I think b- both she and Robert Reed worked to make sure that the Brady kids were that way as well. I believe so, yes. There were two, there were re- they were a family off screen yeah. as well. That they used to go on vacations together and yeah, do different Robert things. Robert Reed, exactly right, he would take them all over the place. Well, God, oh my gosh, I just looked at how long we've been speaking. How long we've been talking? We're over 40 minutes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> We need to chew more. <laughs> I know. So, so before you take a big mouthful of salad, what what uh, what do you want to promote? What do you want to mention? We've got the TV show, which will debut at some point, right? And we will it's try to give the, my listeners a heads up when that happens, so we yes. can help. You can actually you can go to benagaintv.com to find out everything about the show. You can go to herbiejpilato.com to find out everything you want about me. You could also order any of my books directly through. HerbieJPilato.com or you could email me. Yes, that's right. I'm going to give my email hjpilato at yahoo.com where you could order directly through PayPal. But you email me, tell me which book you want, and I'll send you a personally signed copy. 
and he even gave me a copy. Yes, of the Gidget's book. Yeah, of the Gidget book. So I now I got to meet Sally Field at some point. That's got to be my goal. <laughs> well, I tell you, I have yet to meet Sally, but I I know Karen Richmond, who is the new Gidget. The new Gidget. Yes. What a doll! What a, a wonderful talent! Oh my gosh, she's such a wonderful person. I love her. I mean, it's a, it's a good life. And I thank you for having me on this beautiful show. Well, I thank you. Hopefully the ambient noise didn't completely go bizarre in were the microphone. Were there ambience here? Well, we're, yeah, the ambience are everywhere. Sorry. Uh, we are we are uh, here, like I said, in beautiful downtown Burbank. And I want to thank you, Herbie, for, for appearing on the show. It has been good getting to know you here over, over our little your semi-healthy foods. <laughs> thank you. Was there ever a sign-off that we would say for as pages? Gosh, no, I, I was just like, see you later. I think for a while somebody <laughs> tried, like, I'll be NBCing you, but that was just so horribly cheesy. Well, we were here. It was NBC be there, right? Yeah. Well, we were here. So, yes, thank you <laughs> for letting me be here. It's time for our own version of Siskel and Ebert, only, you know, living. Here's film critic Tim Brennan. We are joined once again, live and direct from Colorado. The, the it, what is the motto of Colorado? Is it the Sunshine State? Is it the is it the highest I paper kite think state? It's, yeah, the, the, that's it. It's something. It's colorful Colorado, but yeah. <laughs> I don't. Know. Our film critic Tim Brennan joins us from Boulder. You know, the only other thing I know about Boulder, Colorado, is that that was the setting of Mork and Mindy. That's all I got. Yeah, it was that, and there is almost now no middle class anymore, so either um, rich people do well here and very poor people do well. If you're in the middle class, well, sorry, <laughs> got to go to Colorado Springs for that. <laughs> all right, we are talking today about The Dark Tower. Yeah. Maybe, maybe yeah, we're not are. talking about The Dark Tower. <laughs> it was a lengthy pause. <laughs> And we're gonna we're, we're gonna get through this together. All right, let's let's muddle through. All right, first tell us uh, the the basic plot synopsis, or if there is a plot at all. This is based on um, Stephen King's series of I want to say eight books. And if you haven't read the books, they are at least some of his best work. Where it is a mishmash of Arthurian fantasy and uh, post-apocalyptic adventure. And it's basically, the premise is, it's about a knightly order called Gunslingers. And the last of them is a man called Roland. And in the books, Roland is on a quest to reach the Dark Tower, which is a nexus of all realities. So it's the thing that basically holds together the fabric of every universe. And if the Dark Tower is destroyed, then all potential realities will fall into chaos. And it's this big, sprawling, long narrative over thousands of pages of books. And so if you were going to adapt this, you would theoretically want to do this as like either an HBO series like Game of Thrones, or at the very least, like Lord of the Rings, you know, three or four, you know, two and a half, three hour movies. Mm -hmm. Um, The worst possible thing you could do would be to do a single 96-minute movie, and that's that's what we got, and that's what I saw yesterday. (laughs) So they tried to cram a little little too much into a little too little. Well, I have a feeling that when King sold the rights, that the studio executives didn't get the concept, and suddenly were like, wow, we've paid a lot of money for this thing, and we don't know what it is, and we don't know how to adapt it and make it profitable. 
And so they all kind of stared at each other in panic. And then someone said, hey, um, those YA novels like uh, The Hunger Games and Insurgent or um, the Divergent, but are like the Maze Runner, that sort of thing. Yeah. Those are cheap and those are profitable. <laughs> Let's change the um, structure and make The Dark Tower into a YA novel, into something like that instead. <laughs> so let's instead change the narrative so that it is, instead of being about Roland, it's about a kid named Jake who lives in New York City. And he has these horrible nightmares about uh, a mysterious man in black and a dark tower and a gunslinger who opposes the man in black. And it would be a big old bummer if it turned out this kid was really just having a psychotic break. <laughs> So it turns out that he really, there really is a man in black played by Matthew McConaughey, and there really is a dark tower. And McConaughey is kidnapping kids with psychic abilities or shining, which you may have heard from somewhere else. Sure, sure. Possibly and a Stephen using King their thing. Psychic abilities to um, do a psychic whammy on the dark tower. And some shenanigans happen, and our protagonist, Jake, escapes through a uh, portal into um, another dimension known as Midworld. And while he is there, he encounters Roland, the last gunslinger, played by Idris Elba. This time, though, rather than uh, being on a quest to protect the Dark Tower, Roland is on a quest to kill uh, the Man in Black, because the Man in Black has murdered his dad. So Roland and Jake must team up to stop the wicked Man in Black's evil plan. And I want to just point out something really quickly here. Mm -hmm. The Man in Black's entire plan is, I'm going to destroy the Dark Tower and bring chaos and death to all reality. And that seems to me like a very poorly thought out plan, <laughs> because he's killing himself. So why would he do that? That doesn't make sense. <laughs> well, looking at the state of U.S. politics, it's actually not that far of a stretch. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the Man in Black, he could get on um, the, the GOP nomination in 2020, I promise <laughs> So this is obviously not a uh, favorite film of yours. I'm, I'm not not sugarcoating it in the slightest here. What uh, what 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 is? Let's let's just go down the rabbit hole. What is the worst thing about it? The worst thing about it is the unwillingness to be faithful to the story. It's it's this big epic narrative. It's not unlike the Lord of the Rings. You know, it's got aspects of spaghetti westerns in it, and. It seemed like the filmmakers were running away from those concepts as fast as possible. So, I mean, as much fun as it is to slag it, you know, you have you read these books? No, I have not. I'd be curious to get your take on them. But, you know, when, when King is writing them, and, and say what you will about him as a writer, you know, he's sometimes a good writer, sometimes not so good. Um, you know, when he writes his books on cocaine, you have the Tommyknockers, <laughs> that's a problem. And when he writes books and he's not on cocaine, you have good stuff like yeah. uh like this or like it or uh some of those other works and when he writes with passion when he's emotionally engaged in something he can he can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with anybody and so i mean he is very emotionally engaged as he writes these books and you can feel the passion you can feel like the oh my god i can't believe i did this i gotta put this in and then this and then this and he's got this incredible imagination on display and the film is like oh, we can't have that because <laughs> it's going to be too weird to um, appeal to all the four quadrants for audiences. So we need to kind of dumb it down and make it as palatable as, as we possibly can. And that, that to me is the worst aspect of it, really. 
So, so, so as film reviews go, your your recommendation is to read the books. I would, yeah, <laughs> I would read the books. I mean, and it's not like it's it's this giant misfire like you know Batman, Robin, or Ishtar. It's just it's lazy and forgettable, and it takes no chances. So, yeah, I would tell people, even despite the mighty Idris Elba, and even despite um, okay McConaughey performance, it's not worth it at all. Well, you've you've successfully convinced me out of going to see a movie I wasn't going to see. So well done. <laughs> My work is done. Outstanding. Tim Brennan, where uh, give it? Give, it's been a while since you've given us the website we can use to uh, find your printed copies of your film reviews that don't contain my my moronic interruptions. <laughs> My uh, my reviews are on uh, www.aboutboulder.com, and they go live uh, every Sunday at noon. So every every Sunday, I got something to write about for you. Excellent. And for those who are apparently either upper class or lower class, you can also find out all there is to know about Boulder.com. So it's all there. Yep, without a doubt. All right, Tim, thank you as always, and thank everybody for uh, listening, paying attention this week. Thank you to Herbie J. Pilato for his uh, interview with me over there in beautiful downtown Burbank. Next week, a little something different, because why not do a little something different? Until then, get off my lawn. This has been the Get Off My Lawn podcast, brought to you by Kevin's Bookmobile. Check out www.lulu.com slash Marusik for a selection of books authored by your genial host. Buy a paperback, download an ebook, and help support the podcast. That's www.lulu.com slash M-A-R-O-U-S-E-K. And by our tip jar. Like what you've been hearing on the show so far? Want to hear more? Then help us out by going to getoffmylawnpod.blogspot.com clicking on the tip jar, and donating to the cause of creativity. No amount too large, no amount too small. That's getoffmylawnpod.blogspot.com. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter at getoffmylawnpod. Check out our SoundCloud at getoffmylawnpodcast, or subscribe to us on iTunes for the latest episodes. Questions or comments, or to suggest a guest, our email address is getoffmylawnpod at gmail.com. The theme was written and composed by Brian Weideman. Check out his music at www.worldbride.com. That's W-O-R-L-D-B-R-I.com. The logo was designed by Julie Contreras at Urban Bird Design. Go to urbanbirddesign.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Tell a friend.